Hello, everyone, and welcome. I am, as I've always been, Michael Mace, and I will be your host for today. I'm with the Atlantic Institute, a nonprofit organization dedicated to peace and understanding through dialogue. To that end, we have put together this podcast, Personal Origins, to sit down and talk with people in our community, people who work in diversity and charity, and just people we generally consider to be good and compassionate members of society. We want to explore what it is that makes someone decide to do socially conscientious work, and if there's a per person, moment, or event that inspired them. Today, I am joined by Dr. Aaron Simmons, a professor of philosophy at Furman University, an author, and someone who has given his time for several Atlantic Institute events. And admittedly, Dr. Simmons has done a lot of work with the Atlantic Institute, but I don't believe we've actually ever spoken personally. So first off, it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's really an honor. So normally I would ask you know, in regards to your profession, something along the lines of how is that? Uh, but considering what it is you do, I think it's more apt to ask why is that? <laughs> Yeah, so <clears throat> I am a philosopher, professional philosopher, which is the kind of thing that, you know, when people ask me on airplanes, what do you do? Like, oh, I'm a professor of philosophy. <clears throat> There's only one of two responses. <clears throat> They're either really excited and immediately dive into some personal story about their own philosophy, mm -hmm. uh, which can go off the rails pretty quick uh, in, in some <laughs> cases. Or they respond by saying, oh, with a kind of, you know, patronizing, you know, head nod. And then that's the last thing we say for the entire flight. <laughs> so <clears throat> being a philosopher is the kind of thing that I never would have imagined myself uh, being. Um, it, it developed in a rather strange way. Uh, it was not the goal. I went to college to be a physicist. And after a variety of, you know, experiences at 18 and 19 in college, decided physics wasn't quite right, um, ended up majoring in history and minored in religion and, and a lot of literature courses. Uh, went to grad school at Florida State University just to watch the Florida State Seminoles win football games, which they did uh, a lot the years I was there. And ended up getting a master's degree in the humanities, a kind of interdisciplinary thing. And that work is what then opened me on to philosophy. So the, the how that I got into it was, you know, really pretty, um, I, I would say it was, it was accidental as a result of very intentional decisions that I didn't see leading this way, right? I intentionally went to Florida State. I intentionally studied the humanities once I got out of physics. Uh, I intentionally took courses that were philosophically inclined, even though I didn't really know what philosophy was. Like all these little tiny decisions that were on purpose eventually culminated into, you know, I, I couldn't see myself doing anything else and enjoying it. Mm. Um, the questions in philosophy just seemed deeper and more significant and <clears throat> not to uh, say that, you know, other areas are not important. It was just that they weren't as important to me. Mm -hmm. You know, the, Absolutely. what kept me up at night was <laughs> philosophical stuff. And I didn't have the words and the language and vocabulary to make sense of it. And then, you know, when I went to Vanderbilt university and got my uh, PhD in philosophy, that's really where I was able to get a language for the kinds of things I had been thinking about for a very long time. And so the how, you know, a lot of uh, intentional decisions that accidentally led into a life. Uh, the why, because at all of the stages, I was trying to do the best I could to position myself to ask the questions I was already asking. Mm -hmm. And so I think, to be honest with you, that's why physics was so compelling to me early on is it too you know, is full of the questions. What is time? What is reality? What's the nature of existence? It was all the same stuff. I just didn't really quite see that that's what I was enjoying. I thought I enjoyed, you know, the high school classes where we threw eggs off balconies and tried to make them not break by constructing some apparatus. And I love that experiment. You know, the, 
the, you know, a, a gun is shot at a 45 degree angle with, you know, X velocity and lands 13 seconds later. How far did it go? Where's the parabola and all this? So I didn't ever really love the math, mm-hmm. but I found myself so compelled by the thinking and the questions. And that's kind of why philosophy is <clears throat> philosophy lets me every single day spend my professional life thinking through the things that I would be thinking about, even if I worked construction or was an auto mechanic, right? No matter what I would do for a living, these questions would be the things I'd spend my time thinking about. And philosophy has blessed me to be able to do it, you know, professionally as well. So I don't know if maybe that's a how and why combined, uh, Oh, I think that's a great answer. I think that's really it's it's fitting considering the nature of philosophy. You know, you were inquisitive. You were inclined to want to know more, and to 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 pursue that is extremely noble. And I think that's very respectable. Another thing that's really respectable is you tend to do a lot of things. You you work. Uh, you work with the Atlantic Institute a lot, like I said. You do a lot of charitable work, uh, just in regards. You 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 uh, you give yourself up, and and one of the things that you do it for is for, in so far as the Atlantic Institute, we we are in diversity. To put it in a very small box, right? To to just kind of explain it very clearly. Um, so, what is it that it makes you want to work with diversity? What is it that makes you decide, Hey, I, you know, I want to pursue this. I want to help these people out. I want to, I want to spread the word. I want to spread, you know, philosophy, um, you know, in this small box, as I said. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a variety of responses that I could give and all kind of occur at different registers. So my first response is to say, because I think that diversity is a type of uh, moral, existential, and social good. Um, we we care about diversity, or one ought to care about diversity, because it is an expansive mode of enriching and enlivening conversations and human experiences, right? There's the kind of existential and social dimension. Uh, but morally, It is the case that diversity rarely in human history plays out just as difference. Mm. It almost always also gets attached to power dynamics that create, uh, you know, marginalization and historically oppressed uh, groups and individuals. So being committed to diversity at the level of a moral task is, I think, an attempt to try to care for, uh, in my religious tradition, we'd say, you know, the least of our brethren, right? You know, the, the least of those in the community have a particular kind of preferential uh, option, right? It's called the preferential option for the poor. We could say this for the preferential option for the marginalized, to see reality uh, from the margins. And I, I think this is a tricky task because it can often lead to a sort of um, you know, well-intentioned, uh, you know, imperialism, right? You know, the the voices of the ones who know and have the power then sort of, you know, deign to allow others to speak. And that I think is entirely morally misguided. It's gotta be about an awareness that if you find yourself blessed with the social status and privilege whereby you find yourself having some sort of microphone, right? It might be a little tiny lapel mic, or it might be you know one of those big, enormous ones they put in front of politicians. But whatever the microphone you find yourself having, whatever size the audience that listens, how can we use that to invite others to the microphone rather than simply you know, using your voice to turn attention to others can you use your power to, as it were, empower others such that you then can step back? Absolutely. And I think that uh, for me, this is a, I know Atlantic Institute also has a uh, you interreligious dialogue uh, investment or side to what it does. And so I identify uh, as a Pentecostal Christian. And one of the reasons that I find um, Christian living compelling 
mm-hmm. is that it models, or at least it should model, uh, though it rarely does in, in contemporary society, a commitment to what theologically we would call kenosis mm-hmm. or a kind of self-emptying, where the idea is that <clears throat> it, it's not power to be in charge. It's power to be capable of being in charge and deciding to hold that power lightly mm-hmm. and invite others to step into it. And so I care about diversity because it makes me better. I care about diversity because it allows my son's life to be one that is not um, wrecked by the legacies of privilege that would be very tempting for him to live into. Uh, I celebrate diversity and work for diversity because I think that it invites those historically without microphones, maybe to, you know, be able to have the ones that, uh, you know, they need to find and and need to speak into. So, so a lot of reasons. I I do think that unfortunately we're in a situation now, at least in American society, where uh, diversity can sometimes be seen as a sort of um, attempt to make oneself look good by not just being self, uh, invested. Yes. And I think that the real work of diversity has to be the kind of thing where you're kind of okay, especially, you know, I, you, the audience may not be able to see me obviously. So I am a white cisgendered, you know, heterosexual Christian male. And so the privilege categories kind of pile on given where I find myself in, in the historical, you know, birth lottery relative to social power. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think is really important is finding ways to say, you know, how can I work for diversity without being seen to do it? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how can I be behind the scenes rather than always on the stage, but then also comfortable enough when you're on stage to use that platform and use that position to um, be crystal clear that, for example, it's not enough just to not be a racist, we must become anti-racist. It's not enough just to not be a misogynist, we must actively become anti-patriarchal. So finding ways to use both the spotlight and then develop a comfort with not being in it so that the spotlight can shine on others who historically might have been missed. I think we're all better off because of that. And, and, you know, hopefully um, growing up in my house that my son becomes the sort of person who this would just be normal rather than some sort of extra work or, or purposive way of living. It's like, no, this is just what we do because, you know, we're humans and it matters that humans take seriously the identity categories by which they are historically labeled. I think that's a fantastic answer. Um, I, it, it actually, it, it touches on a lot of what, uh, what I personally do with the Atlantic Institute. I, I tend to stay in the background. In fact, a lot of, t- a lot of people who are, Longtime supporters of the Atlantic Institute have probably never even met me or heard my voice. And it's because I'm a shy guy, but Mm -hmm. I also like to do what I can, take what small amount of knowledge or know-how that I have to to try to elevate others, uh, to to try to push the spotlight elsewhere, you know? Um, and And I think that a lot of that does have to do with morality. It has to do with having a more keen sense of what's going on in the world around you, um, which I can absolutely pick up from you. Um, and so, so what do you, th- what do you think about that morality? How do you think that it, is there, is there anything in your, is there someone, is there something in your early life that might have put you into a situation to where you, where, where it has skewed your viewpoint toward this thing? I mean, it, it is, it, like you said, it, it's so easy for you know, the white cisgendered male to fall into those traps of, you know, being theoretically at the top of the chain, so to speak. Um, so instead of diving in and being the, you're the worst version of yourself, like why, why are you now, um, you know, trying to, uh, to assist others? Is, is there anything like that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
I, I think that it is always complicated to try to go back and say, all right, where are the threads and, uh, you know, Dif different, you know, currents that come together to make the river of one's life or the tapestry of one's life. Absolutely. I do think that uh, a few different <laughs> things maybe are worth highlighting. One, um, my parents are both intellectuals. Uh, my dad was an art professor forever. My mother was in education. <clears throat> and as a result, I grew up deeply committed to the life of the mind. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that you can be committed to the life of the mind in a responsible way, that you could be what we might say epistemically conscientious. You, you don't get to do that without developing a keen awareness of your own limitations. Um, Socrates was right when he says, you know, that spending much time thinking about wisdom, you'll start realizing you ain't got much of it. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that probably the key virtue in moral living for me is humility because it uh, reminds us always to check ourselves, you know, not, not drink the Kool-Aid of our own hype. <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of like, you know, back um, <laughs> centuries before when, you know, kings and emperors would have uh, servants, you know, walk behind them and, and, tell them, you know, memento mori, memento mori, you know, this like reminder, you're gonna die, you're mortal too, king. <clears throat> and I think that intellectually, what we might call epistemic humility, this awareness of your own limitations, your perspective is not absolute, no matter how objective you might think you're being, bias enters in. I think that being raised by intellectuals invited me um, to take seriously the fact that no matter how much I knew, I didn't know much. Um, now, it's also strange. I, I'm now hearing uh, Benjamin Franklin in the back of my mind where he says in his autobiography that humble people don't write autobiographies. So I realize saying the great virtue of humility is uh, a thing that characterizes my life is a very non-humble thing to say. Uh, and I apologize to our audience oh, for, no. for that irony. But I do think that there's something important about an awareness of you just don't have it all figured out. And, mm -hmm. and this is what I try to teach my students on day one. If you're going to do philosophy with me, we all start by admitting we have more to learn. And as soon as you recognize that you've got more to learn, that's going to propel you then to other voices, other perspectives, other experiences, other cultures, other languages, uh, because that's where you're likely to learn the most instead of just learning from others who have very shared and similar histories as yours. So I think that that's an important one. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, I was also raised uh, say in, in a Christian home. Um, and again, I am a very vocal critic of very prominent strains of white evangelicalism currently that I think uh, are uh, not only not living up to the way of Christ, but actively socially uh, harmful. Uh, they are hurting people. Um, <clears throat> but why I would appeal also to my Christian tradition, and this is certainly not exclusive, right? I think you know, people from lots of different faith backgrounds or cultural traditions could say the same thing. But for me, you know, th there was always something when I read Martin Luther King that resonated. It was like, well, he's appealing to this God that I also appeal to, and it's a God who is on the side of the widow, the orphan, the stranger. When I read James Cone's liberation theology, and he talks about, you know, the God on the cross being in solidarity with the, the struggle of those who have been oppressed, you know, that, that just seems right to me. <laughs> so the other thread would be a, a robust, um, way of making sense of my own faith tradition as invested in the voices who have been often ignored. Um, that, that I think is important. And then finally, I would just say, <clears throat> you know, all of us uh, are more likely to be concerned about each other when we recognize our own vulnerability. My sister, when she was three years old, got diagnosed with cancer. Uh, my brother at seven, I think it was, got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. 
and so I grew up, you know, in hospitals with my my siblings and seeing that no matter how hard you work, you know, our bodies break and, and life is tough and morale, mor- uh, mortality is real. Um, you know, several of the little kids in the hospital suite with my sister didn't live, you know, and thankfully my sister did. Um, but but I, I don't see that as some sort of, oh, well, God was providentially invested in my family and not theirs. Mm-hmm. Instead, what it does is it calls me to recognize, wow, the radical awareness of vulnerability is what is also a radical equalizer. I mean, the pandemic has been interesting in this way. As horrid and traumatic as it has been, it's also, it shut everyone down at some Mm -hmm. level, right? I mean, it didn't affect in the same ways, obviously, the global poor and the global wealthy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, everybody was vulnerable. I mean, when Tom Hanks got the virus, I thought, well, shoot, if Tom Hanks can get it, like, you know, we're, we're all done, you know? Yeah. And so there's something about embodied vulnerability that I think also invites us to be more invested in the embodied flourishing of others. Right. Absolutely. Um, so may, maybe those threads. And then finally, uh, I do work on a philosopher or a couple of philosophers that speak to these issues. Um, Soren Kierkegaard and Emmanuel Levinas, I do a lot of work on, and their specifics are irrelevant to your audience, I'm sure, but they both um, invite a deep awareness of our relationships to others as the space where one's relationship with God plays out. Uh, Levinas says that, you know, the trace of God shows up in the face of the other. And I think that's right. So, you know, in Kierkegaard, you know, stresses the importance of what you've done to the least of these and the works of love are, in fact, the mode in which uh, the way of Christ is is followed. So regardless of one's religious tradition, these intellectual thinkers, you know, Levinas is Jewish, Kierkegaard is Christian, and yet both of them, I think, speak to the importance of radical moral relation as grounding for who we are and who we're becoming. Oh, absolutely. And I think the the more that I work in this space, the more that I see that the baseline morality, the baseline, for a lack of a better term, philosophy, a lot of these religions um, that do you know that we that we speak with all the time, they're so similar in a lot of regards. And I feel like that is the one thing that people continuously try to build a wall around, you know, um, is their religion, you know, uh, human beings have been since day one, very tribal in their dealings. And I feel like that's something that is still ingrained inside of us in an instinctual way. And that's something that we should be able to kind of get beyond, right. That this, this tribal mentality that the, the face of God is in the other, right. That, you know, looking at other people and recognizing our similarities and accepting our differences is like that, that key that we need to be able to move forward. And so, well, you know, um, when, when you come in and you, and you do a lot of these things for us, you know, we know that we have somebody that we can trust, somebody that we can, uh, that understands what we are trying to deliver. Right. Um, and that, and that's one of the reasons why we, we absolutely love talking to you. You, you mentioned a minute ago that the audience might not be interested um, in Kierkegaard Levinas, but I will say if you have walked away from this and you are interested, please go check out Kierkegaard Levinas ethics, politics, and religion by Dr. Aaron Simmons. Uh, he is, uh, he is an author on the subject. He knows what he's talking about. Um, and, and I think a lot of what you're saying here is helping. And a lot of what I've heard from going back through events that you've done with us is that you make philosophy more approachable. Um, like you said, if you sitting on a plane, you're, you say what you do. Some people are locked in and they want to engage with you. And some people are just completely spaced out. They don't know what to say. And I think that's because philosophy in and of itself can be seen as sort of obtuse or uh, arcanic almost, you know, like there's this, there's this higher level of thinking that is required to understand. And I, and I, 
don't feel like that's the case. I'm, I, I, I would, I assume that you don't feel like that's the case. I don't want to speak out of turn, but what, what do you do? I, I've noticed a couple things and looking through your, I, I try to do my research on my guests, and I noticed that um, uh, you, you are involved in things like the philosophy of hip hop and things like that. You know, in an attempt because you're, you're a college professor. Um, one of the big walls that we have at Atlantic Institute is reaching out to younger people and making them want to care. There's a lot of apathy in youth. And I think it's just because there's inundated so much with learning about the world, trying to find your own place in the world, that kind of any sort of ancillary thing that doesn't immediately gravitate to you, you, you push away. But for college students, you sign up for a class, you got to be there. Right. So, it, it, you know, how, what do you do or what is your approach to making philosophy more approachable? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I, I definitely think that's a value to which I am committed. Um, and the reason is really quite simple. It's look, if I think philosophy matters, then it would have to matter in a greater sense than just for professional philosophers, because what it is that philosophers claim to be speaking about is existence, life, truth, meaning, beauty, goodness, right? These aren't esoteric abstract ideas. This is the nuts and bolts of embodied existence. And so if philosophy can't somehow find us there, then it has, I think, failed to do what it was meant to do. The ancient philosophers, especially in, in Greece, but also <laughs> uh, some Confucian philosophy as well, has a deep sense that philosophy is not an academic discipline. It's a lived practice. It's a way of life. And that's why even early on when you said, you know, talk to us about you know, what you do and why you do my way of talking about this always is, you know, who I am rather than what I do, mm-hmm. because I really do see philosophy, and it doesn't sound cliche, but I see philosophy as a calling to a particular kind of living mm. that then also happens to involve a job for which I get paid, right? Like, but that's secondary at some level. Um, <clears throat> the greatest philosopher I've ever met in person, <laughs> and I, I did... Uh, an episode of my YouTube channel on this guy. <laughs> His business is he owns a hot dog stand in Floral City, Florida. <laughs> and uh, his, his name's John, um, but he goes by Pudgy. And so Pudgy's hot dogs, highly recommended. <laughs> but when I met Pudgy, he's like, oh my goodness, you're a philosopher because my father-in-law was friends with him and he took me to meet him. And we're standing there at his hot dog stand. He's like, so he like shut the hot dog stand down, basically. Like when he and I chatted about philosophy for two hours, and this dude just rocked it. Now, you know, was he trained in philosophy? No. Does he have a PhD in philosophy? No. He sells hot dogs, but yet he lives the philosophical life, and it was really transformative because I realized, wow, I've got all these degrees, but what matters in the Socratic sense is you know, am I inviting others to live more purposefully Mm. towards some sort of human fulfillment? Given the fact that we are finite, let's get good at this stuff, right? (laughs) If we were infinite, we'd have a lot of time to screw around. (laughs) Yeah, We ain't infinite. So, you know, how do we do living better? And so my approach to making philosophy accessible or more broadly engaging is it's never trying to water it down. Hmm. Uh, I, I, my, my books are still really technical and probably horrible reading for most humans because, you know, it's important that the neurosurgeon not water stuff down. Like she needs to be able to know all of the T fiber brain cells. Like that's important. You don't yeah. want her to be kind of like, you know, mediocre at this. But when she's explaining to you what's going to happen in the surgery, finding different language is important precisely because she understands the technical debates, right? Mm-hmm. So when I write books, I tend to write them for scholars, for philosophers that are engaging this at a really high level. But 
I don't see that as the most important thing. I see that as what sharpens my tools to be able to really understand what's at stake in debates that we all already are invested in. And one of the problems, I think, with academic discourse in general <laughs> is we've gotten so specialized, which again, I think is important, but we've gotten so specialized that we don't even know how to make sense of our own questions outside of our technical discourse. So when, when somebody asks me, you know, why does, why does it matter that we be moral? I don't think the best answer is to say, well, let me tell you about Kierkegaardian moral ontology. Yeah. Like, I, that's not going to help that person. What they're asking is, but why should I care? Does yeah. what I do really matter? Mm -hmm. does, does caring about other people really mean anything? Even if there's no God and no eternity, and why then should I care? And being aware that those questions matter because they are at the core of human existence, I think is the key. So <clears throat> one of the reasons I think philosophy in particular proves so challenging um, is everyone thinks that they already are good at it. <laughs> and at some level, what I'm saying is yes, because we're all asking these questions are, you know, we are all experts at our own existence. Mm -hmm. The problem with this is it's unimaginable for just, you know, you or I to walk into the neurosurgeon and try to explain to her, no, I think you should do the surgery this way, <laughs> right? It doesn't make yeah. any sense. And we are aware that it doesn't make any sense. I've almost never met someone random, you know, <clears throat> Betty, Sue, or Joe, have I met who doesn't think that they really have a better sense of the world than I do, right? Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Maybe they're right. Again, part of that humility of philosophy is not many philosophers walk around thinking they've got it all figured out and you should listen to them, <laughs> which is another weird kind of specialty thing, right? Yeah. But it does make uh, probing conversations difficult because so much of popular society think they've already got answers to the questions philosophers are trying to invite them to ask. So yep. when I um, talk, for example, to a student and I say, um, for example, I teach philosophy of religion. And when, when I speak to my students, you know, a good percentage of my class identify as non-religious, atheistic, uh, even in some cases. And so they think like, what a waste of time. Like religion's interesting purely as a kind of sociological or cultural phenomenon. Otherwise this stuff's dumb. And part of my task is to say, okay, but what might be um, valuable about taking seriously what the vast majority of the world's historically existing humans have thought was true. Yeah. Maybe there's something here. Like you might be right. Atheism might be true, but maybe there's a reason to kind of put that commitment under, you know, erasure for a minute mm -hmm. and then yeah. take seriously what maybe you're missing. Alternatively, my, you know, white evangelical, you know, upper class kids, which I have a bunch of at Furman and they're lovely. You know, part of my task is to say, huh, but wait a minute, why do you think that your birth lottery happens to have gotten everything right about metaphysical truth? Yeah. If you had been born, you know, in a different country or a different time, you would believe something very differently. And maybe that should give you some pause about the obviousness of your own commitment, right? So I tend to think that the way you make philosophy accessible is not by trying to convince others that the philosopher is so smart and they should listen to us like a therapist or a physician, but instead that you invite others to take seriously the questions that they go out of their way to occlude, right? that the, you, you invite them to become aware of what they take for granted probably isn't obvious to other people. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where I spend most of my time is not trying to, you know, expose the nakedness of the king, nor is it trying to break down the belief structures of my students. 
It's instead trying to invite anyone with whom I'm speaking to say, I actually think that what's really cool is your experiences and your background and your perspectives might benefit me and benefit my technical philosophical training in ways I can't even predict. So we've got to be invested in this conversation mattering. And look, you know, what we do as philosophy gets narrated in society as irrelevant, as useless, as impractical. You know, the number of students that come to me and say, my parents told me I can't major in philosophy because I've got to do something practical with my life. My response always is, okay, uh, so major in something that is like clearly directed towards a particular job, mm-hmm. fine. But notice the average adult American will change careers three times. So if you've spent all your time training for one job and yet on average, you'll keep that job roughly four to five years and then change it, mm-hmm. maybe we should spend our time and rethink what college is about in order to say, but you know what, whatever job you have, whatever situation occurs, whatever crisis or pandemic hits, you're going to have to make sense of, does getting out of bed matter? Does moral life uh, compel us? Mm-hmm. Is truth something to which we're committed? Or are we okay with conspiracy theories and you know social nonsense that actually allows us to feel like we're empowered? Well, no, we're being duped by power. We're not actually committed to truth. Like, it seems to me that what philosophy does is the most practical thing anyone can study because no matter what else you do, you're still existing in the world with others and having to figure out how to do it well. And that's what philosophy is about. So at the end of the day, I um, try my best to invite those students, those listeners, those readers that want to go deep, you know, come on, I, I, I'm, I'm ready to go there. But more importantly, is trying to cultivate an awareness that the conversations we're all having are all philosophically implicated. And so we've got to get better at listening to each other, but also get better at being able to say, look, if you're going to be committed to conspiracy theory, contradictory views, rejecting evidence, holding beliefs that are in fact denied by public reason, you know, maybe there's good reason for people to be critical then of where you stand. And so that's also part of the game, right? It's not just all warm and fuzzy and everybody's great. It's no, how can I learn from you if your arguments are good? And and that if is something that does require, I think, a real, again, humility about the fact that we might radically be wrong and we should rethink where we stand. Absolutely. That's uh that's a way better answer than I could have ever anticipated. Thank you so Sorry, much. Sorry, it was much longer than I should have given. I apologize. No, there's no such thing as too long of an answer. As I'm sure you as a philosopher would say, there's no such thing as a completely wrong answer right (laughs) it's funny that that there are certainly uh answers that you think man yeah i'm going to struggle to give this any points right (laughs) but it's also fascinating sometimes the the most revealing stuff in conversation tends to be when you try to get a handle on the assumptions that your conversation partner has about your belief so, for example, I often have people, you know, come to me and it's like, how in the world can you be a Christian? You're way too smart for that nonsense. And my response always is, well, what do you think Christianity is? You know, or they'll say, how can you believe in God? And I was like, what God do you think I believe in? And almost inevitably, once they fill in, I was like, oh, no, no, you, you've been misinformed. I'm an atheist. And like, what? What? And I was like, well, if God is like you described, I absolutely reject that God. You know? <laughs> so being able to get a sense of, what it is that the other person is assuming Mm -hmm. is really important. So being able to slow down, listen a little bit, ask some questions to get a better sense of where they're coming from. Because often, you know, we, we run in guns blazing metaphorically 
uh, or, or sadly, sometimes non-metaphorically, we run in thinking we've got it figured out and they need to just listen to us. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, for example, um, one of the things I often tell my students and, and readers and stuff is political disagreement between conservatives and progressives, for example. All kinds of, you know, disagreements worth having there. And I identify as very progressive on most issues. However, it's important to remember in principle, though maybe not in practice, in principle, the difference between progressives and conservatives is not one loves people and one hates them. It's they have a different relationship of the balance between liberty and equality. Mm -hmm. But both sides are radically committed to both goods. (laughs) So if we start by saying, well, no, as a progressive, I think equality is the condition in which liberty gets lived into. And the conservative says, no, 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 it's only because of maximal liberty that equality is able to be taken seriously. Well, now you've got a really compelling conversation to have. Right. But if you start by saying, oh, so you're cool with killing babies? Like, oh, well, wait a minute, you hate women? Like suddenly very little is going to happen as a result of that because we're assuming about the other that they are fundamentally at odds with our basic commitments Mm -hmm. rather than recognizing it might be that their commitments and our commitments are really similar, but the way we cash them out or the way we make sense of what they entail is where the divergence starts to occur. And that I think is ultimately where, I don't know, philosophy, uh, you got to be thick skinned uh, as a philosopher. Um, Doesn't mean that you don't get offended and don't get angry. I think those are sometimes important tools in social uh, life. Mm -hmm. But I also tend to think, you know, if if you're gonna quickly jump to offense in the context of argument, you're probably not going to be as effective at inviting transformation. And Absolutely. that's where I tend to see, you know, there are different spaces, you know, when I'm um, marching with friends against racism and linking arms to stand, you know, against injustice, that's not the space where I'm saying, but look, I've got a modal ontological account of why we need, like, no, that, that's where I'm simply testifying in a cloud of witnesses for what I think is the good. Absolutely. But, you know, other spaces, that testimony is probably less relevant and the long-standing patient engagement with somebody about issues that are very central to how we make sense of ourselves. Mm-hmm. That you're asking a big change from people when you're saying they should change their beliefs about the world and others. Absolutely. And so that's patience, right? Absolutely. We um we have been talking about that a lot with the Atlantic Institute and how you can't change hearts and minds by telling people that they are wrong or bad. That never it never works. It never reaches people in the way that you would hope. And there's so much of this argumentativeness throughout all of these elements that make up society, you know, and there's, there's these differing philosophies that um, it's impossible to try to just say, Hey, come on, you know, like, why do you think this way? It never, it it never works. Critique is an important tool in Mm -hmm. the toolbox, uh, but it's not the only one. And so I do think that there is value in being able to show someone that their beliefs or their commitments or their practices are hurting people, right? Um, But I think what you're appealing to in that move is that they remain morally upright if they could see that their actions are actually hurting people. The tricky part is when you meet somebody who says, yeah, I just don't care, right? And that's where I think, well, you know, sometimes it's important to realize philosophy is going to run into a wall. You know, philosophy assumes that all participants are invested in at least the practice of thinking more carefully and clearly about what we think about. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you meet somebody who just isn't, then I think that the plausibility of philosophical outcomes being positive goes down. 
Uh, and I admit this is where I have gotten <clears throat> as a result of the pandemic, uh, or, or maybe better the social response to the pandemic in, in America and other parts of the world, I admit some of my optimism for philosophical transformation has has waned <laughs> because, you know, when, when you've got people running around claiming, no, I don't have to wear a mask. It's my liberty. It's my right not to. I, I, I don't know where you go from there. Right. If, if the bar is that low to care about other humans and you still say, nah, I'm good. Screw it. I, I don't know where, oh, well, I just need to show them better data. No, it, it's not about data. The data is clear, yeah. right? It's not just about, oh, I need to make a better argument. The arguments have been made. <clears throat> it's, there's a widespread um, social delusion that is being perpetrated at very high levels of social power that is running on the importance of fear-based egoism. And that's an enemy to philosophy. That's an enemy to moral life. And so I don't have really good suggestions on how you navigate that because I think philosophy is facing, you know, a kind of uh, existential threat when you run up against, you know, uh, a, a sizable percentage of the country refuses to think that our current president was duly elected. Like, despite all the evidence, despite all the court cases, despite all the, you know, there's a point at which you think, all right, if you've just decided that evidence no longer matters in your formation of belief, then it's not like, oh, I just need to give you more evidence. No, you've abandoned that as a criterion for belief formation. So I, I just want to claim that there are moments where critique might be all that's left. Mm -hmm. um, there might be moments where you know, sometimes you you just stand opposed to evil and you stand opposed to error. Um, and, you know, you hope that things eventually make possible conversation again. But unfortunately, I, I don't know where we go from here. I'll be honest with you. It, 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 the last 15 months have made me, um, regardless of my political orientation, mm -hmm. Uh, they have made me skeptical about what I do, what I am being socially valuable yeah. because I'm, I, I'm convinced that I don't matter, but philosophy does. <laughs> and yet <laughs> I'm also convinced far too many people don't care anymore. And, and that's, that's a hard space to, to pull back from. I think it's encapsulated. I've heard this multiple times and Every time I hear it, it makes my brain hurt where people will claim that's not my truth. Mm -hmm, my mm -hmm. truth is different than yeah. your truth. And I'm sure that as a philosopher, you believe there is truth. Yeah. There it's is an immutable truth. Yeah, it's tricky. So, yes, uh, in the sense that I think there is a mind independent state of affairs that in a variety of ways we should do our best to align our beliefs uh, in light of. Mm -hmm. I also think, back though to our point earlier about diversity, there are lived truths that are um, going to be complicated and plural precisely because of the different experiences of embodied existence. Mm -hmm. So, Yes, I think that it is a cop-out and um, simply weak thinking to say, hey, you know, that's just fake news. That's, that's your truth. That's not my, no, I, I got no time for that. But I do think that the way we respond is best to understand the very things that would motivate diversity commitments are also what would motivate, all right, what am I missing in the experience of that person that makes them not see some state of affairs that is patently, you know, clear to the vast majority of reasonable humans? <clears throat> and that I think is the hard work, right? So i uh, give you an example. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to something like climate change, mm -hmm. the science is clear 
the data is obvious, in my opinion. Um, it, it's, I mean, again, there, there, I should say relative to science, there's always going to be continuing disagreement and debate about the way things play out. But as close to consensus as you can get, climate change science is consensual in that sense, right? However, um, are there deep vested interests in things remaining the same and not changing? Yeah, the status quo is a powerful motivator. And people who are benefited in the status quo rarely are going to be very excited about changes of political situations that they perceive will disempower their status. So when somebody says, oh, climate change is you know, fake, it's an invention, my immediate response, which is probably unhelpful, is to say, what a buffoon. Like, no, you're, you're just ignoring the data, yeah. which I think they are ignoring it, but they're ignoring it because of really deeply held investments in what they perceive to be, you know, a world that scares them, right? A world without fossil fuels or whatever. <clears throat> uh, I hear this a lot from religious people where they'll talk about, you know, uh, this doubts the sovereignty of God, that we could do this to the global climate just means that you, you don't have trust in God to take care of things. I'm like, well, you know, belief in sovereignty of God is a deeply held belief. And why does that have to be challenged in order to rethink climate change? But yet, if that's where the objection's coming from, mm -hmm. I have theological work to do. So more climate science isn't going to change anything because it's not even affecting where their belief lies. Yeah. Right. So that's where I think, yeah, uh, I want to affirm truth is something towards which we all should strive in some sort of collective uh, task. I also, though, want to say difference matters and the lived truths that um, sometimes make objectivity something that is a bit more uh, messy than we would like. I think that just calls for, you know, better work and, and more careful listening, which doesn't mean at the end of the day that you walk away and say, hey, your truth, your truth, and my truth. No, yeah. I'm still going to say you're wrong about climate scientists, like yeah. period. Yeah. You're wrong on this. However, if I'm more interested in changing their view and transforming their perspective, then just feeling, you know, righteous in my own rejection of their view. I'm going to have to find a different mode of engagement. And that sucks sometimes. I'll be honest. It, it's way more fun just to say, what a buffoon. Yeah, of course. But, of course. You know, then I've made it about me, right? I, I say to <laughs> a lot that it's important to love truth more than being right. And that that's a... I need to, I need to follow that philosophy. That's a smack, right? On all of us. My wife would say that I need to follow that philosophy <laughs> all day long. Uh, another, another thing that, uh, uh, you made me think of is, you know, at its heart is philosophy, not being skeptical of certain things. So where is the line drawn between skepticism and being a flat earther or, you know, really good, really good question. <clears throat> I, I often define philosophy as, or philosophers as people who put question marks where everybody else puts periods. And that, that does sound like, well, hey, let's just be skeptics, right? Question everything. Uh, and I think that's okay as a sort of first place to be. Mm -hmm. When you hear something, you should say, hmm, maybe, right? Uh, I, I, I talk about this some in my TEDx talk, uh, which is on YouTube called The Failure of Success. And I talk about the idea that philosophers are not seen as successful very often because mm -hmm we are less outcome oriented and more invested in, again, a way of life that may or may not lead to the outcomes that we hope for or that we desire. Um, but being faithful to what matters is ultimately the best outcome, right? Like that's what should define our lives. So <clears throat> I often get told by people, I couldn't be a philosopher. Uh, eventually you've got to stand somewhere. And I'm always perplexed by that sort of reading of what I have said, because I'm like, well, I write books because I stand somewhere. I mean, what a boring book it would be if it just says, I don't know, like the whole book is <laughs> I come down here 
but I recognize there are reasonable places others can stand. And that's the problem with people, I think, um, not doing enough philosophy. Again, not in a professional sense, but a kind of mundane human sense. Mm -hmm. When we make philosophy a way of life, we don't stop standing somewhere, but we now stand there aware that we could stand elsewhere. Mm. Uh, that, that, That means we're not skeptics. It means that we are epistemically humble about our commitments. And I think that this is powerful because true, true confidence is grounded in humility, right? Think of the difference. Somebody, you know, puts their head in the stand and just foot stomps, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Well, that's not humility at all, but it's also not confidence. It's a fear that they might be wrong. And so, dang it, we're going to fight tooth and nail to make sure no one even can, you know, ask a question about this view, right? True confidence says, you know, in light of the objections that I take seriously, in light of the different views that I understand, in light of the criticisms that I get and have spent years wrestling with, yet I stand here. Mm. So true confidence is bring the objections because I stand here on purpose, not I stand here because I'm unwilling to consider anything else. (laughs) So at the end, you know, I, I tend to think that we shouldn't just be skeptics. I, I don't think that's a compelling way to live. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, think about it in relationships. You know, what, what would it look like to say, you know, well, hey, do, do you love that person? Eh, I don't know. I mean, you know, it may just be a plot from some other you know country or there maybe you know what's happening is that you know the klingons are trying to take over america by you know seducing philosophers like so skepticism can override human flourishing relationships require trust and trust is at its base at its core a recognition that confidence rests in humility and so that's what i tell people is that you i say this at the end of the ted X talk is you won't be remembered for the questions you asked. You'll be remembered for where you put periods down, recognizing that questions continue. And that's hard work. And most people don't want to do that work. They want to put the exclamation point and then punch people who, you know, have some commas in their back pocket. <laughs> and, and I think philosophers are those people who say, nah, I'm going to stand here, uh, but I recognize there are other places I could stand. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Also, Zoom has a time limit. Hmm. So uh, I really want to thank you so much for joining me today. Dr. Aaron Simmons, philosophy professor, wonderful guest um, for our first guest. I couldn't have been more pleased. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, So happy to be here. I appreciate the work that the Atlantic Institute does. Um, and I think that the value of what they do is ultimately it invites people from all different walks of life, all different perspectives to come together and figure out that, you know, there's more to it than I might have seen. And there's more to take seriously than I might have been aware of. And that I think is ultimately what philosophy is about, uh, and if anybody was interested in uh, more of my stuff, let me recommend my YouTube channel, Philosophy for Where We Find Ourselves. I do uh, not quite daily, but uh, frequent videos about little, you know, philosophy for life things. Um, and then also they're, they're, you know, welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn or, uh, you know, Twitter or other places. Uh, they can find me, you know, anywhere on those por- uh, platforms and my website, um, is simply jaronsimmons.wordpress.com, jaronsimmons.wordpress.com. And that's where I put a lot of public lectures and links to interviews and podcasts and, you know, different things like that. So I, I would love to hear from, you know, listeners and others who are thinking about these things because it's important that we think about them together. So thanks for having me today. It's really been an honor.
Absolutely. And I will, wherever you're finding this podcast, if it's on iTunes or if it's on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts, if I am able, all the links to everything that Aaron just mentioned will be listed. In addition, if you're interested in the Atlantic Institute, please visit our website at www.atlanticinstitutesc.org. We are rolling out our summer uh, programming. We're going to be working on a tour of faiths coming up very soon where we see ourselves going and looking at how people worship and how the other side lives, so to speak. So if you're interested in that, please go to our website and sign up. Uh, You can sign up for our mailing list as well. I just want to thank everybody for listening today. I want to thank Dr. Simmons again. So in the meantime, take care and we'll talk again soon.